invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, passage that Matt Cole read for us, verses 18 to 25. This morning, we are talking about trusting God when nothing makes sense in our life at the moment. And that is a good deal of us here this morning on any given Sunday morning, especially when we are facing times of suffering, pain, bewilderment, uncertainty, confusion, and still saying, I trust you, Lord. Several years ago, uh, Becky and I, uh, in one of our, in our first church in rural Minnesota, we had a close friend, and he was on the elder board, and I was able to do his wedding, and it was delightful, and then a number of years later, we got a call after we had left that church that he uh, had aggressive stomach cancer. At that point, uh, they had uh, four kids, preteen and teenagers. It was three weeks from diagnosis to death at age 46 that he died. It was interesting. It was the first person I had ever married and then also buried. And when we uh, were involved and got the first phone call, still remember his wife saying to Becky, Becky, she said, please hear me. Whatever happens, God is good. And I believe that. And when we showed up uh, out west for the funeral, we saw two things. We saw a woman in deep pain, hurting, and we saw a woman at peace with God. That's what we're talking about here this morning. Here's the stark facts. We are a collection this morning, as I told the first service, of very ordinary people. But many of us are at this very moment in extraordinary pain. And that pretty much is true in any congregation, any size, on any given Sunday morning. We have people here this morning who have been wounded, who have been abused, who have been betrayed, who are in illness, who have difficult marriages, who have wayward children, who are in financial situations, who have health issues, who have chronic pain. The list could go on and on and on and on. All of us, at different moments, are involved in times when life hurts, when nothing is making sense. And here's the driving question, whenever we're in that season, whenever we're in that moment, and again, a lot of us are there right this minute, the driving question is, how are we responding to God? Because ultimately, it's between us and the Lord, not horizontal. It's ultimately a vertical thing. And it really boils down to, am I blaming God? Am I going to blame God, blame others, get bitter? Or am I going to trust His Word that He truly does love me and He is sovereign and whatever He has put in my life is for His glory and my good? And hear this, it's not an exaggeration by any means to say, how I am choosing to respond to God, especially when nothing is making sense, will have massive consequences in my life and push me one of two directions, possibly permanent directions. This weekend, we're starting a brand new series, an Advent series called Christmas Choices. And we're going to begin with looking at a choice that Joseph, the human father of Jesus, faced when nothing made sense to him at a moment in time, when he was publicly shamed and embarrassed, and yet he chose to trust God. This is a very practical sermon has great implications for all of us here. And his story and his response is a tremendous example of God's providence in trusting God's providence 
and believing he is leading even when to us nothing is making sense. We're going to look at two things in these verses. First of all, Mary's unexpected news. That's an understatement. We'll look at Mary more next week. And Joseph's choice to trust God. But first of all, Mary's unexpected news. We're going to dive in in verse 18. And then we're going to need to do a little cultural analysis because a number of the factors in this story are very different than we are accustomed to in Western culture. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now in the West today, the typical, put that in quotes, but the typical way of, the typical path towards matrimony is dating and then maybe, you know, going steady and kind of becoming an item, and then eventually it kind of morphs into engagement, perhaps. Unfortunately, that often leads to couples cohabiting and living out of wedlock in sin, but then eventually sometimes it leads to marriage. That's not unusual for a path today. In the East, and in many traditional cultures today, uh, marital the, the marital equation, I guess we call it that, was, was more complex and a little bit different. It usually involved two phases. There was the promise or the betrothal phase. And then there's the actual wedding ceremony. Both stages, you had family and friends involved. And often with a series of go-betweens and dowries. Even think of something like Fiddler on the Roof and the Matchmaker and all that kind of stuff. And you have parents involved and the Matchmaker involved. That's pretty standard in a lot of cultures still. And it certainly was the situation back then. Many of us are aware that even today there's a lot of arranged marriages. A good deal of the world still does arranged marriages. Uh, on one of our trips to India, Becky and I were going through the newspaper, and it was surprising to see how many pages, page after page after page, were ad- advertisements for brides or bridegrooms from parents. And exactly what they were looking for in a spouse for their child. Very specific things that we would find, a lot of us find, frankly, rather offensive to put this in such blatant terms. I actually brought one of those uh, sections home. I still have it in my file because it is so different than, I mean, I had never seen that in the Chicago Tribune or the Wall Street Journal. Where you would just have pages and pages of advertisements for, okay, I'm looking for a, a, a daughter for my son, and this is what her skin color needs to be, and this is how tall she needs to be, and this is, needs to be her IQ, and this needs to be her pedigree and her background. Just stuff we would find very offensive. There it is, and there's hundreds of them, thousands of them in the average newspaper in India. This is very common. They call our version of marriage, meaning, you know, you kind of go out and hunt and pick your spouse and you kind of do your own thing. They call those love marriages versus arranged marriages. And you might be surprised, maybe not, but a lot of people that live in traditional cultures view the way we do it as foolish and destructive and that it doesn't work very well. And yet you talk to people over here and you say, what do you think about arranged marriages? You get the same kind of response, like, that's weird. How could that ever work? A number of years ago... uh, my son Ben and I were in southern India and we, were, we went on a road trip with a professor from a seminary where I had been doing a little bit of teaching and we got to know this guy pretty well, Viji. And so we're, we're on this road trip with him 
And somehow we got into marriages and cultural differences. And out of the blue, VG says to Ben and I, he said, well, you know, love marriages in the West, they don't work. And I, I said, really? I said, uh, and where exactly have you been in the West? Well, I've never been over in America or anywhere in the West. I said, well, how do you know they don't work? Well, I, you know, it's just everybody knows they don't work. I said, well, okay. You do, and he knew Becky and I pretty well at that point. I said, you know Becky and I? Well, yeah, 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 you guys are an exception. I mean, but the rest of the world did work. And I said, well, uh, actually, I said, I have quite a few people in our congregation who, by your definition, have a love marriage, and it's working very well. He was surprised by that. And, I, and so we, as we chatted about it, it was very interesting just to see the difference of perspective. We can have false impressions. They can have false impressions. As you come to this passage, we need to know we're in a traditional culture here. This is a shame-honor culture. This is a culture of arranged marriages and dowries. And there's a couple things you also need to know about the whole process here. Once a couple was in that first phase, the betrothal phase, the relationship was considered legally binding. Very different than an American engagement. That's what people miss here. So uh, it, it's engagement on steroids. I mean, they're locked in at that point. They have not consummated the marriage, but they're locked in. For example, the, the relationship can only be dissolved by divorce, legal divorce at that point, even though they have not consummated the marriage as husband and wife. Uh, sexual unfaithfulness would have been labeled adultery, not fornication. And thirdly, the death of one of the partners in the betrothal phase would leave the other one classified as a widow or a widower. So again, you need to know that as we come to this story because this story is, is a little bit foreign to our ears and you need to understand how locked into this whole thing Joseph was. This wasn't just a casual thing. He could go, oh, she's pregnant and uh, that's weird and so I'm just going to walk away from her they're an item. And this is a tiny little rural village. Okay, Nazareth. Today, Nazareth is, is a large city, larger city. It's the largest Arab Muslim city in the state of Israel, not the Palestinian territories. In the state of Israel, the largest Arab Muslim city. But back then, it was not, it's not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in Josephus. Nazareth was nowhereville. This is just a tiny little Jewish village back in Jesus' day, and news would spread, you know, across town in about two and a half minutes. And so here we have this dirt poor couple. We don't know exactly how old they are, but they're conventionally would have been very young, married likely a young teenager. And rural Galilee, and some of you know, Galilee is viewed as, as hillbilly land. Uh, even Peter was made fun of in the New Testament because his accent was Galilean. That was up north. That was viewed as back in the hollers and you know, however, but it was not viewed as urbane. It was not viewed as sophisticated. They were looked down on culturally. And so you got this young couple from a backwards area in a little know-nothing village. And they're in phase one of a, of a traditional first century marriage. They're in betrothal. So they're in a legally binding situation. And uh, probably even calling each other husband and wife. That was not unusual, even though the marriage is not consummated yet. And suddenly, in the midst of all that, this little tiny village, Joseph and Mary, Mary is pregnant. And they've never had sexual relations. 
And Matthew tells us at this point how she was conceived, but the whole point is Joseph doesn't know this yet. So sometimes we read a divine interpretation and we think, oh, well, he, but he didn't know it yet. It just says she was found to be pregnant at the end of verse 18 through the Holy Spirit. Well, Joseph had not been tipped off yet. So all he knows is his bride-to-be in this little village who's a virgin is pregnant. And so here's the obvious question. What is his only conclusion? This is not rocket science. When she says something, you know, like, uh, well, I'm pregnant because of an angel, you can imagine your response. And you can imagine what my response would be, like, yeah, right. <laughs> what have you been sipping on, drinking? Come on. And so you, can, you start to appreciate, ladies and gentlemen, young people, this is devastating news. This is shocking news. This is a shame honor culture. Again, I, I don't normally try to bring out all these cultural differences, but you need to realize this is a very different culture than us. And this is a shame-honor culture. And so the question at the moment, the question that faces all of us from time to time, is what is Joseph going to do in the midst of feeling utterly betrayed, culturally shamed, humiliated, embarrassed in front of his relatives and family, her relatives and family, and everybody in the area is going to immediately know what happened and it's going to look bad on him, bad on her, bad on their families. I mean, this is just... its a you know, humanly, it's a, it's a mess. And most of us have not really thought through the public humiliation of Joseph in a traditional culture. The dishonor, the confusion, the pain, the shame, the embarrassment, the sense of betrayal. And uh, for Joseph to go ahead with a wedding at this point would be unthinkable at most and scandalous at the least. And you should know, by the way, Another cultural thing, divorce for adultery was often mandatory in many first century Jewish groups. That's how binding, there was very little else to dissolve a marriage. And even biblically, there's very little that justifies dissolving a marriage, let alone allowing for remarriage. However, adultery did. And so some kind of divorce, here's the point, was his only real option. That brings us to verses 19 to 25, Joseph's decision to trust God. So, with divorce being likely his only option, there's really two ways you could go about a divorce back then. You could do it publicly with the village elders and all those who are involved, and involves getting the dowry back and all this kind of stuff. Or you could do it quietly. And here I found some real help uh, from a New Testament scholar in Africa. I have his commentary. And so I thought, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to look for an outside Western perspective. That's often helpful in Bible study. And I found a good New Testament scholar from Africa. And so I looked up this passage, and he had some very insightful comments. So writing, he's a native of Zambia, good New Testament scholar. And in his commentary on Matthew, he gives some insight into Joseph's character. He says this, quote, If Joseph divorced Mary quietly like the text says he's going to, he would suffer economic loss. For he would not be able to demand the dowry back. Negotiations for return of a dowry would inevitably involve the help of the village elders and thus make the matter public, close quote. And so even there, at financial loss, 
in the face of financial loss, in the face of public humiliation, in the face of what he was convinced, that shows you how easy it is to get locked into our own narrative, he was convinced she had betrayed him, and all this kind of stuff, he chose the high road. Verses 20 and 21. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So verse 19, and notice, calls Joseph her husband, even though he's not, they haven't consummated the marriage, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had mind to divorce her quietly. After he had considered this, the Greek word considered there, interesting, Ken Bailey, who's a New Testament scholar who's taught in the Middle East a lot, he said that word typically is a word of anger and being upset. So this, this is a devastating situation for Joseph. But here's what's interesting. Once Joseph chooses to trust God and take the high road in all of this, God begins to reveal more of his will to Joseph and leads Joseph on a very healthy path. And that's often the way it happens. So again, verse 20, 21, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord... So Joseph first made the decision in the midst of pain and shame and humility and, and, and humiliation and all that. But once he did, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. I want to point out a biblical principle here that I think you'll find encouraging and helpful. And it is this, there's often a direct relationship in the Bible between trusting God, choosing that next step of obedience, and then God continuing to lead in our lives. And God often guides and provides his people little by little as he sees us, if we know him as Savior, taking that next step of obedience, even when nothing makes sense, and then he'll reveal a little bit more. You see this with Abraham and uh, the uh, offering, he's told to offer his son Isaac. And so he does what seems like just absolute craziness. And then God slowly provides for him as he sees Abraham move forward in obedience. You see the same thing Moses in the Red Sea. Makes no sense in the world. Lift your rod and the, you know, the whole thing will divide in half. And it's like, it's nuts. Moses does it and then God reveals more and God does some amazing things. Or you see it with Naaman and being healed of leprosy, if you know the story. Naaman is told this general from Syria, not, a, not one of the Hebrews, told to heal his leprosy by going down and dipping in a muddy river. I mean, that makes no sense medically, but he did it. God came through, and you see this principle in Scripture that as a believer, takes steps of obedience, even in the face of nothing making sense, God will often then open up the next path and then the next step to do. On a, on, a, on a side note, many of us in the West don't put a whole lot of stock in dreams. So Joseph, notice, he finally learns all of this. How? How does he learn? About what's really going on? How's he, he learns through a what? A dream. And we often don't put a whole lot of stock in dreams in the West. I've shared before, but it's worth, it fits here perfectly. It's worth sharing. In graduate school, I had a professor from Burkina Faso. In West Africa, he was, he was born and raised and served in Bobo de Lasso, Burkina Faso, French West Africa. And I took a course from him on West African Islam. It's fascinating. And one of the things he told us during the course that I will never forget, had to do with dreams, 
And he told us, you know, before he uh, pursued uh, uh, doctoral research and doctoral work in, in, in Western Europe and the States and became a professor, he had spent a number of years as a pastor in Burkina Faso. And he said this, he said that, he told us that 50% at least of his pastoral time duties was helping the people in his congregation interpret their dreams. That that's how much time it took on a regular basis, in an average week, he would spend almost 50% of his pastoral time helping people just interpret their dreams. And I remember sitting there as a graduate student thinking, I've never helped anybody interpret their dreams. And frankly, I certainly wouldn't want a lot of mine interpreted because they're just, frank, you know, frankly weird and bizarre. And, and yet, listen, now since then, I have had a few people over the years come to me and... Uh, present a dream, and it seemed significant, and we prayed about it, and there was, there was some leading. I had a pastor friend in Michigan who was on the other side of the city, and he told me one day over lunch that he received some significant, that was his word, confirmation through a dream at one point in his ministry that it was very specific. And in our case, Matthew ties the angel's words back to the prophet Isaiah. So the dream needs to be consistent with the word of God, but it's amazing to circle, when you, whenever you see the word dream in the Bible, there's a lot of dreams going on and visions in the Bible as God speaks. Now the big news from the angel, verse 21, is that Mary had not committed sexual sin. She had not cheated on him. That shows you how wrong Joseph was, even though he was convinced he was right. Her, he, he had not been betrayed. Her pregnancy is of the Lord. It's a virgin conception. And Joseph has also given information about the mission and identity of the child. So, first of all, the child's mission, verse 21. Look at verse 21. She will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from his sin. Jesus is a, a, a Greek word. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. You also should know that in the first century, back then in Palestine, Jesus was a common name. And that's why he had to be designated Jesus of Nazareth. Because there were other, and today, in Latin America, Jesus is still a very common name. But it, here, it means the Lord saves. And the point is that any who will flee their sin, renounce their sin, bow the knee and worship him, will be forgiven of their sin. That's still the pattern today. What's his identity? Well, we're given that in verses 22 and 23. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, that the virgin, now here we're quoting from Isaiah 7, will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. So Jesus is Greek. The Hebrew version is Joshua. Now we're given a Hebrew name, which is a proper name. It's a couple Hebrew words put together, but it means literally God is with us. And so he's not just a prophet, as Islam would say. He's not just the son of God, and that's it, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is the Lord God in human flesh. That when you're looking at him, you're looking at Yahweh in human flesh. So in the Old Testament, God has a name, Yahweh. In the New Testament, God has a name, Jesus. And you're looking at none less than Jesus as God incarnate. That's why we talk about incarnate. God incarnated into flesh, and that's who you're looking at when you're looking at Jesus. And that means he's the only Savior. Young people, that means he's the only Savior. Jesus says in John 14, 
I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, some people look at that and say, oh, narrow-minded. I look at it and say, I'm just glad there's a way left. I'm glad there's a way to be reconciled to God. And I'm thankful for the gospel that Jesus is the crucified, buried, risen Messiah who says, if you will believe in me, I will give you eternal life. John, 1 John 5, 2, he who has the Son has life. He who rejects the Son of God does not have eternal life. Finally, notice Joseph's immediate obedience. This is interesting. We saw it already. We saw some of his character and then his response. But look at verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke up from the dream, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. There wasn't, as far as we can tell, any hesitation in the face of what made no sense humanly. God spoke, God said it, Joseph obeyed. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So even in the midst of humiliation, apparent betrayal, hurt, Joseph chose to trust and obey God. He did the right thing. He did the right thing. Uh, doing the right thing is often difficult. It's not easy. For some of us here this morning, a number of years ago, I had a woman in my office who came to my office. And she, very common situation, her, her circumstances were a little bit different than Joseph's here. But she happened to be in a marriage that was, she said, miserable. That her husband was self-centered, he was a jerk. You know, you hear all the same stuff. He, and so, but I pressed her a bit. I said, okay, but biblically, do you have any grounds for divorce? Has there been adultery? You know, no. And as we talked, there was no grounds for divorce or remarriage. And I said, okay, well then... Uh, you're stuck. I mean, you made a vow. God expects you to keep your vow. That's why they call them vows. They're very sacred. They're very holy. And he expects us to keep it. And she admitted, she, she said, you're right. I don't have any grounds for divorce. It was very interesting that as we talked, she finally said, quote, so I'm going to have to trust God and do the right thing and stay with my husband. And that's exactly what Joseph did. Made no sense to him, made no sense to her. Choosing to do the right thing can make all the difference in the world. That brings us to our summons this morning. This is a fascinating story, isn't it? This is just a very applicable story. Because all of us are either in the middle of something that doesn't make any sense, or we just came through something that doesn't make any sense, or we're about to go into something that's not going to make any sense. And if you live long enough, you're going to cycle through that again and again and again. And so that's why it comes back to theology. Who is God? No matter what's going on over here and down here, is he good? Can I trust him? Is he all-powerful? So our summons this morning, twofold. Number one, are you trusting God in your pain and confusion today? And, there, and there's two aspects to that. First of all, it means you have committed your life to Jesus as Lord and you trust that he's the Savior and you have bowed the knee to him and asked forgiveness of your sin, and you've said, I believe the gospel and that you are the Son of God, the only way to the Father. That's crying out to be born again and to be saved. And the first question for any of us is, no matter what's going on, we are the first step to trusting God is surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I know a lot of us here have done that, but I also know there are some of us here who have not done that. And I would urge you today to repent. Make this the day of your salvation. Make this the day you're done messing around. 
The evidence is overwhelming for the New Testament documents. The evidence is overwhelming the claims of Jesus. The evidence is overwhelming. He is exactly who he said he was. Settle the issue today and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Second step of trusting God in the midst of pain. Are you willing to trust God even when nothing is making sense to you? If life is hurting and confusing right this minute, and it is for a lot of us, and if you know Christ is Lord and Savior and you're convinced that's settled, here's the question. Then are you trusting God and God's word, whatever you're going through? Are you letting this be your north star, taking small steps of faith obedience, even though nothing makes sense to you? Or are you fighting God, angry at God, bitter at God, bitter at others, in charting your own course. There's only two paths on this. You will never stay neutral. I will never stay neutral. I'm either moving away from God or I'm moving towards God. Especially when I hit a time when nothing is making sense. There's no such thing as staying neutral. You will, we will always be moving one of two directions. I'm going to close with a true story that's very personal for Becky and I. It involves her grandma, her grandmother, Elizabeth, a woman Becky never met, I never met. I'm looking forward to meeting her in heaven. Godly woman. Elizabeth died in rural Minnesota at the age of 54. What made it especially traumatic for her and her husband is she contracted a disease. Becky's grandfather was a very respected physician in that region. And he could not save his wife. And he lost her at age 54. They still had a lot of dreams left. Obviously, they were getting ready. He was. He was older than her by over a decade. He was getting ready to retire. He had all these dreams. And then his wife contracts the disease. As a physician, he can't do anything and she dies. What's very interesting is that they had, they had a couple kids, but two of their boys were twins. One of those twins is Becky's father. As they, and these twins were now in their 20s as their mother died their mother at 54, and, and very interesting, Becky's father, the one twin, looked at it, and to this day says, it makes no sense why God took my mom at 54, but he's good, I trust him, and he said, blessed be the name of the Lord, and he moved towards God, and he has one of the godliest men we know, to this day, he's in his mid-80s. His twin brother, who is still alive to this day, said the exact opposite. He was in his PhD program in physics. He looked at the whole thing, said the same, came to the same conclusion, this makes no sense. And he moved away from God and denounced God and for decades now has been a professing atheist. It's interesting to watch the two decisions because it was a watershed and those two decisions both solidified and to the best of our knowledge, even though we continue to pray for her uncle, became permanent, impacting their lives in eternity. Question this morning, what path are you on? As life doesn't make sense, if life is not making sense, choose the godly path. Choose to trust the Lord. It will make all the difference in the world because your path may indeed become permanent. Father, thank you for Joseph's story, a lot that we often don't think about, and yet... It is a powerful example, God, of a man who was publicly shamed, humiliated, felt betrayed, had his narrative constructed, 
and it was wrong. And yet he trusted you in the middle of it all, and he said, I'm going to walk and take the high road here. So he asked that you would help us. I'm sure there's all sorts of us here this morning, and we're in the midst of all kinds of things that aren't making sense. Health issues, financial issues, relational issues, marital issues, issues with our kids, grandkids, life. Father, it's so easy to choose the self-destructive path when things don't make sense in our pain. Help us to choose the godly path. And I pray for those here this morning who don't know Christ as Savior, that today might be the day they say, I'm settling it today, and I am going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes the most sense. It's clear He is who He said He was, and I want Him as my Savior. Father, thank you for the scriptures and for the gospel. In Jesus' powerful name, amen.